talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud. Ho, 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 everyone. And thanks for joining us on our final episode for 2017. Julie, Kelly, our producers and I are all getting into the holiday spirit. Yes, we've decked the halls and ourselves with Santa hats and reindeer antlers. Although we hope to dole out all of our benefits news much faster than it takes Santa to deliver all of his presents. We're definitely going to rush through this episode so that you can get back to your holiday shopping, decorating, and fruitcake. But make sure to stick with us until the end today when we share our own true stories about holiday memories and office traditions. You might be speaking for yourself on that fruitcake, Julie. Hey, someone must like fruitcake. All right, and on that note, let's get started with the two-minute update. Just a reminder that we are recording this on Monday, December 4th at 2 p.m. Central Time. Starting with two nomination updates. First, the Health and Human Services Secretary. On November 13th, President Trump nominated former Eli Lilly executive Alex Azar to replace the ousted Tom Price. And on the 29th, the Senate Health Committee held a hearing to vet Azar. He is very likely to be confirmed. Moving on to EBSA, the nominee for the new Assistant Secretary, Preston Rutledge, had his Senate Health Committee nomination hearing on November 15th. Rutledge currently serves as a senior tax and benefits counsel on the majority tax staff of the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. His nomination is also likely to be confirmed. Next, moving on to state-sponsored retirement savings programs, we had discussed the Connecticut Retirement Security Exchange, overseen by the Connecticut Retirement Security Authority. On November 7th, the state's labor commissioner, who chairs the CRSA, announced the exchange would not begin on January 1st of 2018, as specified in the law, as it would not be ready. A project timeline is being built and should be ready to announce by March 1st of 2018. Lastly, we have one more news on the conflict of interest fiduciary rule. Wait, wait. Hey, guys. Why is the fiduciary rule like the abominable snowman? I don't know why. Because it hasn't been finalized yet. Well, Kelly, I actually have real news to share on the conflict of interest fiduciary rule. On November 27th, the DOL released a rule formally extending the transition period to July 1st of 2019. Thanks, Justin, for the update and for putting up with my joke. Okay, let's jump in Santa's sleigh and move on to the big news story of the moment, tax reform. Julie, I'm sure you have some updates on that for us. Yes. All President Trump wants for Christmas is tax reform. A lot has happened in the Senate over the last few days to meet his December 25th deadline. But let's back up a little. In the last episode, we covered provisions that were in the pretty much final House bill and the Senate bill as first amended. Since the timing of that episode, the House passed their tax reform bill on November 16th. 
over the past couple of weeks, the flurry we've been seeing is, no, not a snow flurry, but instead wrangling in the Senate over their tax reform bill. On November 16th, the Senate Finance Committee approved the bill and sent it to the Senate Budget Committee. That committee approved the bill after Thanksgiving on November 28th. On November 29th, the full Senate passed a procedural vote to start debate on the bill. Because of the budget reconciliation process, the Senate was limited to only 20 hours of debate. Then came their amendment process, with the very catchy name of Votorama. As a reminder, under this process, only a simple majority is needed to pass a bill. In other words, 51 senators. That's right, Kelly. All eyes were glued, or stuck like a tongue on a metal pole in winter, to find out if the Republicans would garner enough votes to pass the bill. There was much wrangling and amending to make it work out. Very early on December 2nd, the Senate passed the bill, 51 to 49, mostly along party lines, with one Republican voting against the bill because of concerns about deficit. So Julie, what does this past bill look like? Well, most of the provisions we mentioned in the last episode are still in the Senate bill. For example, the elimination of the ACA individual coverage mandate, or more accurately, the new penalty of zero dollars for not having coverage, and the tax credit for employers that pay at least half wages to employees out on FMLA leave. One change, in order to assure her vote, Senator Susan Collins of Maine insisted that the out-of-pocket medical expense deduction threshold be lowered. Right now, the deduction kicks in if an individual spends more than 10% of their adjusted gross income on out-of-pocket expenses. Under the final Senate bill, that threshold is down to 7.5% for 2017 and 2018. The House tax reform bill eliminates the d that deduction, is that right? Yes, Justin, the House bill gets rid of that. Well, while we're on the topic of tax reform provisions related to health care, I'll mention that Senator Collins also insisted on a promise from Republican Senate leaders to approve two health care bills meant to address the impact of the individual mandate repeal. One bill, a bipartisan effort, was originally proposed by Senators Patty Murray, a Democrat from Washington State, and Lamar Alexander, a Republican from Tennessee. It would restore those ACA cost-sharing reduction payments to insurers to subsidize coverage for low-income individuals for two years. The second bill, spearheaded by Collins herself and Senator Bill Nelson, a Democrat from Florida, would provide funding for reinsurance programs, also described as high-risk pools, aimed at bringing down premiums. Kelly, I had read that a letter from the Congressional Budget Office says that the Murray-Alexander legislation may have little effect on counterbalancing premium increases or coverage losses if the individual mandate gets repealed. Yes, I saw that too. We'll all just have to wait and see on that one. Going back to other tax reform provisions, Julie, did the increased child tax credit stay in the Senate bill? Yes, the final version still contains the increased child tax credit of $2,000, up from $1,000. And as a reminder, the House bill also increases that credit, but only to $1,600. So exploring more of a benefits perspective, what about retirement provisions in this bill? Well, Justin, the final Senate bill did have a couple retirement plan changes from what we reported in the last episode. The final version of the bill took out the provision that eliminates catch-up contributions for high-wage employees. So individuals who earn $500,000 or more still could make catch-up contributions. 
The final bill no longer contains the provision allowing in-service early distributions at age 59 and a half for governmental 457B plans. So we have two bills, the House bill and the Senate bill. And as you've pointed out, they're not the same. So what's the next step? You're right, Justin. The bills are actually very different. While the House could just decide to accept the Senate bill as is and vote on it, that seems unlikely at this point. House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said they will soon name conferees for a conference committee, which will work out differences between the two bills. And as we've also mentioned previously, there has to be just one approved version of the bill before it can be sent to the president for consideration. Can you remind our listeners what a conference committee actually is? Sure. Both the House and Senate will appoint certain members of their chamber to be on a committee to work out differences on the two bills. Often the members selected are senior members of the standing committees of each chamber that originally considered the bills. In this case, it may be senior members of the Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee. Others can be appointed as well. Once the conference committee has worked out the differences and drawn up a bill they all approve of, the bill goes for a straight vote in both chambers. It can't be amended on the House or Senate floor at this point, but the first chamber to vote on it can instead send it back to the conference committee for further consideration. Thanks, Julie. For a more in-depth refresher on how a bill becomes a law, please check out our fifth episode from this past May called Washington Strikes Again. So, Julie, in your expert opinion, do you think these bills have a snowball's chance of being merged and becoming law? (laughs) Really, really good question, Justin. Unfortunately, my crystal ball, or is it my snow globe, is still cloudy. There are a lot of differences between the two bills, which makes it seem like it would be a tough job coming to a consensus. But Republicans are very motivated to pass major legislation before the end of the year. And President Trump has said he'd like to sign tax reform legislation again before the end of the year. So it sounds like the Republicans have both a lot of work and a lot of motivation ahead of them. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Julie. I guess we've got just a few more weeks to wait and see if there'll be a New Year's tax resolution in place. Kelly, it seems like 2017 has included a wealth of healthcare activity. I bet you can gift us with some healthcare updates. Of course I can. Last month, we briefly mentioned that the IRS will be enforcing the employer mandate and is issuing penalty notices this year. So it sounds like it's not the most wonderful time of year then? Yes, some employers probably feel that way. So let's take a look at what the notices and response forms entail. As I mentioned last month, it will begin with a large employer, as defined by ACA, receiving a 226J letter from the IRS. This letter will spell out how much the IRS believes the employer owes for not complying with the employer mandate in 2015. Along with the 226J letter, there will be two additional forms. One of those forms is Form 14765, titled Employee Premium Tax Credit List, which lists all the full-time employees who receive premium tax credits, also known as health insurance exchange subsidies, in 2015. In other words, it's providing the reason the IRS believes the employer owes a penalty. The other form is Form 14764, called the Employer Shared Responsibility Payment Response, which the employer will use to respond to the IRS. On the response form, 
the employer will indicate whether it agrees or disagrees with the proposed penalty assessment. If the employer agrees, it signs the response form and sends it in with the penalty payment. So Kelly, what if the employer doesn't agree with that proposed penalty? If the employer disagrees with the proposed penalty, it must provide a full explanation of that disagreement and indicate changes, if needed, on the other form that lists those receiving the premium tax credit and sends it in to the IRS. Then the IRS will decide whether the amount of the proposed penalty should be adjusted. After its review, the IRS will send the employer a letter to 27 and a notice and demand for payment, also known as a notice CP220J. This notice will give the employer further instructions and alternatives to pay the penalty. Oh my goodness, that is a lot of new forms and numbers. Will there be a quiz later? Ugh, I hope not. Okay, Kelly. How much time do employers have to respond to the 226J letters? I believe it's not very long, especially for those who don't agree with the proposed penalty and have to prepare their explanations. Yes, you're right, Julie. An employer has only 30 days to respond after they receive the letter 226J, no matter if they agree or disagree with the proposed penalty. Employers will have to add that task to the holiday and end-of-year rush. It's crucial that they be on the lookout for correspondence from the IRS among all those holiday cards. While we don't yet know how many notices the IRS will send out, this could have a huge impact on employers. The International Foundation Elves already made several resources available, including a recently recorded webcast and a few blog posts to keep you informed. Visit ifebp.org slash webcasts or ifebp.org slash blog to learn more. Okay, are we ready to move on to the next topic? Well, actually, there's one more quick healthcare news item I'd like to share. It was announced that Mega Pharmacy CVS Health has agreed to purchase Aetna for $69 billion. This could really transform the healthcare marketplace. CVS Health wants to become a one-stop shop where consumers can buy health insurance, find community-based clinics that dispense medicine, and get data and advice on their prescriptions. If the deal goes through, it could lead to more industry consolidation. Other insurers who tried to merge in recent years may try again. Other pharmacy giants could follow suit and look to acquire other healthcare insurers. There's also been discussion that Amazon may get into the healthcare and prescription drug game. Of course, it could all be a moot point if the CVS Aetna deal fails the antitrust test. More to come, I'm sure. Well, thanks, Kelly. That definitely could bring about big changes to healthcare. We'll definitely have to monitor those developments. Now, switching gears, I also have some news to share on the multi employer front. Wait, 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 I've got another joke. Who is a multi-employer trustee's favorite Christmas musical artist? Ugh, here we go. Who? Mannheim Steamfitter. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Hey, that was a clever one. Or was it maybe more of a groaner? Okay, on to the update. Since we started recording the podcast, we've talked to you about the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act, or MEPRA, and the challenges facing some multi-employer defined benefit pension plans. Julie, before you kick that off, can you remind our listeners what MEPRA actually is? Well, wait, even before we do that, I think we should remind them what multi-employer plans are. Well, I think this sounds like a double foundation from the foundation. 
Yes, I believe it is. All right, I can take a crack at that one. A multi-employer plan is a employee benefit plan maintained by more than one employer and a labor union under one or more collective bargaining agreements. It's governed by a board of trustees. Half of the trustees represent the union and the other half represent the employers. These plans are used in industries where workers move from job to job, project to project, employer to employer, like construction, entertainment, retail, or transportation. Without this type of plan, workers wouldn't be able to earn pensions or health or disability benefits because they don't work for any one employer for a long enough period of time. Okay, that explanation works well. Now what about MEPRA? Okay, MEPRA is a law that was passed in 2014 to help multi-employer defined benefit plans that are facing deep financial troubles. Its main provision allows these deeply troubled plans, those in what's called critical and declining status, to reduce promised pension benefits. Plans need to apply to the Department of the Treasury if they want to cut benefits. As we've been reporting, the department may or may not approve the applications. It depends on if the proposed benefit reductions will keep the plan afloat. And as we've discussed before, it's a very hard decision, kind of between a rock and a hard place. No one wants to reduce pension benefits that have already been promised, but if the plan becomes insolvent and the PBGC has to take over, participants' benefits are slashed as well. Under MEPRA, reduced benefits will still be higher than benefits that would be provided by the PBGC. It's my understanding, though, that most multi-employer defined benefit pension plans are in good shape. And with the soaring stock market of late, some are doing very well. It's a relatively small percentage of plans among all the multi-employer plans that are facing serious challenges, right? Yes, Kelly. There are more than 1,300 multi-employer defined benefit plans. It's estimated that there are about 110 plans that are in critical and declining status. Unfortunately, the largest multi-employer defined benefit plan is really struggling. That plan is the Teamsters Central States Southeast and Southwest Areas Pension Fund, which provides pension benefits primarily for workers in the trucking industry, though the Teamsters Union also covers other industries. So Julie, why is the Central States Fund in trouble specifically? Well, it's a combination of factors, Justin. For one, the trucking industry has faced some of its own challenges, and the number of employers involved with this pension fund has declined. Also, there are many retirees covered by the fund, and far fewer current or active workers. That active-to-retiree ratio is a big component for funding calculations. Oh dear. Let's not start talking about actuarial principles. <laughs> This is supposed to be the holiday episode. <laughs> okay, I, I won't talk about anything actuarial. Let's just say, though, that in multi-employer plans, employers make contributions to pension funds on behalf of active workers. If there are fewer active workers, employers are putting less money into the fund. Then it's hard to have enough money to pay pension benefits to all the retirees. It's the same concern we're facing with the Social Security system. Okay, you're just trying to be sneaky. You did just talk about actuarial principles. Okay, I couldn't help myself. Remember, I'm a benefits nerd. I like pension actuarial principles. Sounds to me like all Julie wants for Christmas is an actuarial textbook. No, no, I mean chocolate. Chocolate's good. <laughs> so, Julie, I'm assuming the 2008-2009 financial crisis also harmed central states as it did for most other pension plans? You're right, Justin. That's another reason for their financial struggles. 
Central States was the first plan to apply for benefit reductions under MEPRA. But the Treasury Department denied their application, saying that even if the reductions had been put into place, the plan still wouldn't be saved. It's estimated that Central States will run out of money in 2025. Thank you for that background, Julie. So what is your actual multi-employer pension news? For the past year or more, several groups have been looking for possible solutions to this what's been called multi-employer pension crisis. On November 16th, companion bills were introduced into the Senate by Sherrod Brown of Ohio and in the House by Richard Neal of Massachusetts as a way to fix the problems. The bill is the Rehabilitation for Multi-Employer Pensions Act and is more informally called the Butch Lewis Act. The bill calls for the creation of a new office within the Department of Treasury, the Pension Rehabilitation Administration. This office would provide federal loans to critical and declining pension plans. The money for the loans and to run the new office would come from the sale of Treasury-issued bonds. Loans would be long-term for 30 years and have a low 3% interest. Under this loan program, there would be no more MEPRA benefit reductions. Many of the troubled plans could be helped just by getting these loans, but some of the more seriously troubled plans, like central states, would need the loans plus financial assistance from the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, or PBGC. How much help would central states actually need? Well, according to the fund's actuarial calculations, they'll need $11 billion to $15 billion in loans and $20 billion to $25 billion in PBGC assistance. Their calculations show central states can be saved with that support. However, as we'll discuss in a minute or so, the PBGC has its own funding problems. So as a result, the Butch-Lewis bill also calls for government funding for the PBGC. This bill wasn't introduced only to help central states, though, was it? No. As proposed, it would help all critical and declining plans. Julie, we've seen other bills introduced to help multi-employer plans. Does this bill have a decent chance of passing? Is your snow globe any clearer on that? (laughs) Unfortunately, not really, Justin. The Senate bill has 11 Democratic co-sponsors, and the House bill has 55 Democratic co-sponsors. But because it's not a bipartisan bill, it does have an uphill climb. But the bill has the support of both central states and the Teamsters Union, so maybe it will be considered. You had mentioned the PBGC. What's the latest news there? On November 16th, the PBGC released their annual report. Similar to last year, they reported their multi-employer program is facing big deficits. In fact, the program's deficit increased to $65.1 billion, up from $58.8 billion last year. The problem is due largely to the ongoing financial decline of several large plans that are expected to become insolvent in the next decade, like central states. And there are also 19 new plans that have been classified as probable future claims. The program is projected to run out of money by the end of fiscal year 2025. And that's the same year central states is projected to run out of money. Yes. On November 29th, the House Subcommittee on Health, Employment, Labor, and Pensions held a hearing on the problem. They asked PBGC Director Tom Reeder to testify and answer questions. During the hearing, Mr. Reeder and the subcommittee members discussed both the multi-employer program's financial challenges and the Butch-Lewis bill. 
In contrast, the PBGC's single employer program continues to improve. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That program still has a deficit, but it's smaller and it's been decreasing each year. The deficit is now at $10.9 billion, down from $20.6 billion last year. It's projected that the deficit for this program will be eliminated by the year 2022. Thank you, Julie. I know that these PBGC updates always feel like a lump of coal in our stocking, but it's still really important to talk about. In fact, the next Trustees and Administrators Institute is coming up soon on February 12th in Orlando, Florida, and there will be several sessions focusing on multi-employer retirement plan administration. To learn more or register, visit ifebp.org slash trustees administrators. Well, before we wrap up and put a bow on this episode, I want to encourage all of our listeners to find a way to take a break from all of the busyness of the season to enjoy some happy moments with friends and family and find time for celebration together in your workplace, too. Now, I asked one of our producers, who's also our director of social media and content marketing, Ann Godsell, to join us to talk about holiday traditions in the workplace. Now, Ann, you've worked at the Foundation for about 20 years, just like Kelly and me, and we've certainly enjoyed our fair share of holiday parties, haven't we? We certainly have. Today, on the Word on Benefits blog, we have a blog post about holiday parties and what other employers are doing, and I thought maybe I would share some stats from that with you today. Yeah, please do. There's a new report out by Challenger, Gray, and Christmas. They put this out every year, stating how other companies are celebrating holidays. And this year, companies report 80% of them are saying that they will hold a company holiday party. Also, we have data from our own employee benefits survey. And in that survey, our members have stated that more than one in five respondents marked holiday gifts as a perk for employees. So I am hoping that our bosses are listening to the podcast today and read the blog posts. (laughs) There you go. One in five. I think we should be one of them, don't you? (laughs) Sure. And then also from our um, the International Foundation's Workplace Wellness Survey, we found that more than half of companies include on-site parties as part of their social and community health initiatives. So that is what we do here we with our party. We definitely do that. We'll be having one in a couple of weeks. Right, mm-hmm. right. In fact, yeah. you look all dressed up and ready to go to a party, Anne. Yes. Have we seen this dress before, maybe going back a few years? Some of us may have seen it, those of us who've been here a couple decades, because I did, in fact, wear this dress to the Foundation Holiday Party, I believe, in 1994. Wow, we used to get so dolled up for those parties. Yes, make sure to check out the picture of Anne on the podcast page, because you can see the the shoulder pads. Those are very dramatic. And then the gold beading all across the her top. Yeah, yeah, and there were often sequins in the room, I there think. There were sequins, and, and, and of course, we always heels. had to wear pantyhose back then and high heels. And, yeah. Well, in the guys, suits and ties, the whole thing. Yes, definitely. There were very kind of formal events we had. Things have changed, and our parties are a little bit more casual and relaxed, and I think they're actually a little bit more conversational and fun, too. Yeah, because we always were kind of we would have a sit-down meal, and then you're just sitting there talking to the five people at your table, and sometimes they were people you spent all your time with anyways. So Yeah, um, now with the foundation, we kind of pick a theme every year, and it's a little more low-key. Um, this year, we're going with How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, last year, we did Home Alone, so we had uh, Home Alone-themed games and prizes. Uh, a year before that, we did the um, Vacation Christmas, which was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny to see what people will dress up as, like their favorite character from these movies. So we are still indeed dressing up, just in a different (laughs) sort of way. We have creative people here at the foundation. Yeah, Anne is one of our, since she's in marketing, she's one of our very creative people. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we'll have to see what you come up with this year. We'll see. Well, Anne, thank you very much for joining us. And to our loyal listeners, thank you all for tuning in this past year and for laughing along with our many bad benefits puns. Julie, Kelly, our producers, and I look forward to making more episodes in 2018. And if you want to give us a little present, please rate us or give us a review on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Happy Holidays! Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel. Novel Noel, Jingle Bells, and Oh Christmas Tree, courtesy Kevin McLeod Music.